Ravi Naidu is our guest this evening. He is our shapeshifter on a Wednesday evening, chief executive at the Youth Employment Service. For 25 years, he has been involved in a whole range of programs, largely focused on social change. And he's worked with trade unions in the public sector, private sector, fund management. He's done lots of different things in quite complicated environments. Um, he's also going to join the National Planning Commission. Who knew that still existed? Um, and let's not be facetious about it. And how do you know when somebody's got a master's degree from Harvard University? They tell you. Yes, he knows academia. Uh, Ravi Naidu, good to have you with us this evening. Welcome to The Money Show. When, when was the master's at Harvard? When did you get that under your belt? Okay, thanks, thanks, uh, Bruce. And, and thanks for starting with that. That's as you say, uh, saves me the effort of having to drop it in the conversation. I later. know. It's just, it, it gets um, through the awkwardness. It cuts through like a hot <laughs> knife through butter. Uh, yeah, no, no, I, I actually um, did it in uh, 2004, 2004. And why did you do it? I mean, what was the, I mean, it's, it's a very trendy thing to do. Lots of people do do it. Um, why did you do it? What was the motivation for you? Um, well, you know, I, I had spent a number of years uh, working in development. Uh, at that time, I, I'd, I, I was uh, working, uh, leading a research uh, think tank with the trade unions. And uh, I, um, I had done a degree before at uh, UDW, you know, good old South African University. It had my BCom law and whatever it was. And I had got, got on to doing a, a, a master's degree. And this was a mid-career. It was based on, you know, so obviously people who had done uh, things. And I have to say, you know, I, I, I was a reasonably uh, delinquent uh, student when I did my first degree. And even though I got a degree, I, I wasn't quite sure I got the full education. So in the Harvard, uh, and they take two people a year in this, whatever, this Harvard's Africa program. Uh, when I managed to get that as a possibility, I thought, well, this time let me go there and do this thing correctly. Because, I mean, it's obviously a huge, uh, I mean, a hugely different experience. I mean, I have to say it was like nothing I've ever uh, experienced before. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was, uh, it would have been crazy not to take it. So, uh, and I also at that point, I suppose, you know, I, I, I was very interested in, in, in getting into the black box of the public sector. You know, I, I, I really wanted to get my head into what goes on in that place. And this was sort of a, a door, a portal into that, into that world. So, uh, so it was just perfect timing for me. When you say it was an incredible experience, I mean, people talk about the life-changing opportunity that these, um, the Stanfords of the world and the Harvards of the world bring. And it's, you know, yes, the academia is all well and good. Yes, the studying is interesting. You might learn uh, some new tricks, but it's about the networks and the connections and the people. And uh, are you still in touch with classmates? Do, have they served any sort of broader purpose in your life? Uh, yes, yes, to, to some extent, and I'm, I'm hoping, uh, and, and so, so we do, we do stay in touch, uh, you know, as we get older and, uh, you know, uh, uh, retell tales of the, uh, those days, and, uh, then I, doesn't make me feel like an underachiever. So my best friend at the Kennedy School was a guy called Lawrence Wong from Singapore. And, uh, uh he's now the Minister of Finance in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, I, I, I really do uh, feel under great pressure 
Uh, and then the other guy who'd spent time at the house with me was a chap called uh, Shereng Tobgay, who then went on bec- to become a prime minister of a little country called Bhutan, which uh, also, you know, they have a happiness index. So that's another thing in his favor. And uh, so the international class was very strong. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, it, it does put a lot of pressure on little people, you know, uh, like me to then say, well, what, I mean, what have I been doing? So when we get together, they, they talk about what they've been doing. And I say, well, I'm, uh, but fortunately, I managed to keep, uh, you know, some, some things going that at least keep me in the conversation. Well, what, what, what is, what has sort of been the highlight of the last 25 years? I mean, if you, well, last 20 years, let's, let's call it 20 years since you were at Harvard, as you've worked through your career, and it's been wildly varied and interesting and textured. What have been the big learnings you've taken out of it? Um, you know, I, um, so, so when I, I, yeah, so it, when I left uh, Harvard and uh, came to uh, came back to the country, I managed to get a um, uh, opportunity to 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 run a division of the DTI and uh, Department of Trade and Industry, and uh, it had a a side job which was to coordinate the economic cluster in government. So that's where all thirteen departments at the time. And they have to work out what they're doing. And then they go every six months to the West Wing in union buildings. And uh, then they present to the president and uh, the cabinet. And, you know, that's, so I did that for a couple of years where I had this DTI thing, which was really an ex- shock exposure to the public sector because it's quite something. And, uh, but also just to get a sense of how, you know, I mean, how things work. Uh, you know, with, with, within the decision-making process, uh, and and that's uh, I, I was able to to be involved in some very useful things there, and um, thereafter uh, spent about five five years or so in the development bank. So, um, and that's uh, you know being involved in, for example, the. Uh, establishment of the Green Fund. So that was one of my projects at the time. Uh, when we established a Green Fund in 2010, it really launched in 2012. And that seeded a lot of initiatives and, uh, managed to be involved in, um, through the institution then of the development bank played a role with what was then the Millennium Development Goals. Where South Africa, where, where we convened the turnaround program for uh, the health sector. You remember then at that point, South Africa was very, uh, in 20, 2008, was very much uh, lost in the wrong kind of policy mix on HIV AIDS. Well, yeah, we, we had and, an AIDS uh, denialist we, as a president who wouldn't uh, subscribe to antiretrovirals. Right, right. Let's be blunt right, about right. it. I mean, Tabo Beck is trying to resurrect yeah, yeah, himself exactly. in the ANC. So, so that, there was no, a no, good... no, I'm not you're trying to you're trying to brush over it, and I don't want us to. Um, and <laughs> if Jacob Zuma did one thing right, if Jacob Zuma did one thing right, it was uh, ensuring antiretrovirals got into more hands. Um, to give him credit for that one thing, we'll give him credit for that one thing. Um, uh, but yeah, the, and, and yeah, the health system was in, was in disarray, and we deal with the consequences as to this day as a result of that. Yeah, so it was very good. I mean, I mean, that was really my project in terms of health because I had joined the DBSA uh, from government. And DB, I mean, look, DBSA then wasn't really a government institution. It was under the state, but it ran very differently at the time. And uh, 
So, uh, at the, and, and, you know, it, it, it volunteered itself to be the convener of a national process to get out of that hole. And that was 2008. Mbeki was actually had just just about left office. And you remember then, Bruce, there was a, I mean, Khalima Motlante for one year became the president. Yeah. In 2008, 2009, the transition president as it was. And um, so, I mean, the story there is I had just joined as the group executive then for what is called uh, development planning. So like all the new stuff. And they thought, well, who's going to be crazy enough to, you know, uh, sort of convene a health process? Because that wasn't really our forte at DBSA. It really was mostly local governments and funding of local governments and all that. But they wanted to build up a new portfolio there. And I was very keen on those kind of things that sort of unlock, you know, something new potential. And uh, at, the, at that moment, so there's a new president and the new health minister was someone called Barbara Hogan who had just, just, just joined, I think, a couple of weeks after uh, or a month or so after that I started. So we just started this process uh, where we were going to convene uh, from the TAC, you know, the Treatment Action Campaign and all those NGOs and uh, the government departments, including the ones who believed in garlic and uh, South African potato. And, uh, and then you had the World Health Organization. So basically all the key organizations who are key to the, the, the health program. And uh, I, I knew Barbara Hogan from uh, a few years ago when we'd worked on the pension fund uh, reform mm. in the 1990s, which was another thing I enjoyed. And then I said, look, and so she knew who I was. And I said, look, so they said, you are now the new minister of health. So don't you want to champion this process and then make that into the turnaround plan that you introduce, you know, with the new administration coming in? And uh, she was obviously very happy because, you know, I don't think she had a huge amount of support from her own department at the time. So she kind of borrowed, you know, this whole process. And uh, within a few months, it had come out with a consensus on what would be the 10 plan to turn things around. And really, it was just doing simple things, to be quite honest. Absolutely. It was just to, to actually start delivering HIV AIDS treatments instead of the crazy stuff. So, so but we had a lot of experts yeah. and just to get to that. So, so, uh, so often solutions to complex problems are quite simple. And the, the, the biggest thing is just to get started, which brings us to where we are today. And uh, do you feel like you perceive something of a hospital pass when it comes to solving the crisis of youth unemployment? I mean, if the official statistics suggest that three out of four, 75% of youngsters between the age of 15 and 34 cannot get a job for love or money, no matter what they do. They cannot get a job. And it's not that they're incapable. It's not that they are not wanting to work. It's simply that the economy is so dysfunctional that it doesn't create the opportunities into which they can step to get the experience they need to advance their lives and careers. Yeah, that, that is right. So uh, I, I, I think it is a hugely challenging, uh, 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 you know, requirements. But... Uh, I, no, it's it's not really a hospital pass because I mean maybe maybe I'm crazy enough to to take the hospital pass you know as Jonah Lomo is coming down the other side, but um, I, I do think you know just like the HIV AIDS thing seemed like an impossibly bad situation, uh, uh, you know I, I do think with youth youth employment youth unemployment again you know nationally the solutions are not 
you know, that unfathomable. Uh, and uh, I'm quite glad to be with the Youth Employment Service um, because I think it does give, uh, certainly, you know, me a good good opportunity to uh, to be involved in implementation, you know, on the ground. I, I've spent years in the wilderness as a consultant, Bruce, the last <laughs> few years. So I, I must say, I'm looking forward to this next next period. You know, and, and, and the question is how? I mean, Tashma Ismail was given the task by the president, I think, four years ago to create a million jobs in three years. And I think we got 60,000. Um, and it was never a realistic goal. Politicians love big numbers, uh, particularly the ones that they don't have to deliver on. Um, and he would throw out, you know, we'll just create jobs uh, and the private sector will do it and we'll give them BE points and everyone will want to. And I think it's been quite a significant buy-in, but the corporate sector can't do it all by itself. And um, and these aren't real long-term fixed jobs and you know, people getting some work experience and are getting a stipend for doing so. Is it achieving its goals? Does it need a rethink? Is it? Are you reconfiguring the way it's going to work? Yeah, so, so I think that's a very important point that you just made is that, you know, to uh, achieve um, millions of uh, more youth, uh, youth employment, Jobs, you know, to get people into jobs would, would, would require quite a few system changes in South Africa. So this program is important because it is creating. So at the moment, there are about 2,000 to 3,000 young people who are placed into mostly private sector jobs each month, which is quite a good achievement, uh, Bruce. I think you need to consider the circumstances because, you know, this is during a recession and we're at the back end of a pandemic, hopefully. And if we look at the stats SA figures over the last 22 months, what is it? We're losing 100,000 jobs a month. Yep. Um, so it's quite some. So, so this program is at least moving in the right direction. Its instrument uh, that it's using uh, is the, the BE codes. So it only makes sense for companies uh, at the moment who really want to improve their BE scores. So companies already at BE level one, or companies in certain sectors where BE is not a big thing for them, uh, obviously that has, you know, it has less traction. I think where we're looking at having uh, more impact is it's it's now shifting more into an ESG, um, I suppose, type of uh, 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 benefits because, you know, uh, even if you're not interested in BE, but you're interested in having a good environmental, social and governance, and obviously youth jobs are, big part of S, uh, then then this is something that you can use to impress your asset managers. And so we're looking at, at that, and we're also looking, obviously, moving into the SME space. Um, but we are also, you know, it's very important for us to, you know, as long as the country doesn't have economic growth, um, uh, you, you, you have a very negative environment no, exactly. for jobs. So. So that limits the, the the sort of you know capability of a program that is pulling against all of that. Um, so I think if you know in those contexts, you know, three thousand jobs a month. Uh, 30, uh, no, 30, well, I mean, jobs, as, as, as wonderful as that yeah. is for those people who are taken out of abject despair and poverty, it unfortunately doesn't address yeah. the yeah. the problem at scale. And and scale is what no, no. We, scale is what we need. How I mean, you you part now. You've, you've again um, been been sort of put onto 
the National Planning Commission. And for most of us, we would think the National Planning Commission is yet another one of those things that has gone into the history books. Um, because since Trevor Manuel um, left the presidency, and I think he left in about 2012, it hasn't had a champion. It's had nobody at its helm, really, that has driven it and put it in the public domain. And and the only reason I remembered about the National Planning Commission is when I got my first vaccine and I was given a little piece of cardboard and it had the logo on it with National Planning Commission. I went, oh, look, it still exists. Um, and, and occasionally there'll yeah, be yeah, a yeah. cursory mention at the end of a speech, like Tabo and Becky would during Women's Month go, and we must get economic growth, especially for women. Um, and it was almost like an afterthought um, that we must pay lip service to this thing. Um, does the thing still exist in any meaningful fashion? Is it making any sort of broad impact in the world, the National Planning Commission? Because, boy, we need it. Yes, yeah, so so I, I think it's very important that it does function. Uh, I think uh, you know, it, over the last five years, it ran into a problem in that, you know, it didn't really seem to have an administration that was keen to take forward its advice. So I think the commissioners who came before me uh, probably faced the situation where they were coming up with great strategies, some of which are now starting to happen. But uh, for five years, there wasn't really much uh, progress, you know. So this is now the beginning of the third, I suppose. Uh, one. And, and our focus is exactly what you're saying, is really on let's look at how things can move in terms of implementation, right? Because we basically know what needs to happen. So the importance of a National Planning Commission um, is that it's meant to give the longer-range uh a direction for the, the sort of five-year plans that government departments have. And then from that comes the three-year budget that the Minister of Finance then gives towards those plans. So it's meant to sort of make sure that we, we aren't just going around in circles. We are dealing with, you know, what are future-facing sectors? How are we ensuring that we get the skills for that? How do we ensure that, you know, we don't have another ESCOM problem in the future where we forget to do something, you know, until it's too late? Um, so it's meant to do that. And, uh, you know, to a large extent, it is dependent on the state of, uh, you know, the public sector. And uh, as we know, that that really has uh, fallen down uh, quite badly over the last decade or so, and probably before that. So that's why you, you're picking up with the president talking more about the role of the private sector and, uh, you know, how how we can... Uh, you know, so you're looking at this, um, his uh, speech recently, where some of the key things about economic infrastructure, you know, ESCOM and Spectrum and the ports and some. So, the, you know, the more of those things that can move and bring in private sector uh, participation, uh, I think becomes becomes quite uh, valuable to take for the plan. So, so, so I think m- most of the planning as such is done. Now it's more about what is holding up the implementation and what can we do about it. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, that's a, it's a huge role. Does the National Planning Commission not need some sort of godfather-like heavyweight in the presidency who has got a hotline to every single government department and a big baseball bat kept under the desk? I'm thinking figuratively, of course, as well, uh, with, the, with, with the, almost an executive authority to bash heads together to make things happen. Because it, it, it strikes me that we, we do planning and we write reports and we do commissions and we do investigations we do oh, everything happens in lovely silos uh, and, and great work no, gets done right. great work gets done 
but there's nobody sort of going and cracking the whip. And the president, frankly, has got enough fish to fry um, on any given day. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that it would be fair to, to lumber him with the responsibility of the implementation of a national planning commission. Um, you know, he's got a very big head office and it's getting bigger and bigger um, every time he makes a, a, a massive speech. But do we not need another powerful individual to actually bring the threads together? Yeah, yeah. So if you look at how, you know, these things tend to work around the world, I mean, where they've been successful, and a number of countries have been very successful with it, um, it's generally, you know, the number two or number three person within the state who kind of is the champion of making sure it happens. And it's normally very tightly connected to the money guys, the national treasuries. Uh, So you don't get your money unless you do what was on the plan and you can show you actually had an impact. And so normally you've got to get that kind of coordination uh, because it's not meant to be just another advisory commission. You know, it's, it's, it's actually a stat, it has statutory functions essentially. So, so, so at the moment it's under the president's office and you're quite right. The president has got other fish to fry. So it's, it's led by the minister in the presidency. And one of the things that'll be very important, obviously, is how the national treasury also, you know, works with the plan because, uh, you know, I mean, that's where you know you're actually putting the money on the right things. And uh, because the planning commission is also a way in which, you know, the private sector gets to engage because the planning commission is really meant to convene, let's say, the key businesses in a particular sector and say, all right, so now the spectrum is opening up. And what do we then do to make sure we are truly at the cutting edge of the digital age and, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and all the other stuff that's going to, swamp the world uh so so that's where it creates also this kind of doorway where you can have the private sector uh you know thinkers and doers then forming a a a, you know like an actual uh working compact that's going to have you know and next month we do this and then the next month after that we do this and so it should play that role Uh, as opposed to just generating a report. It cannot happen soon enough. My thanks to Ravi Naidu this evening, our shapeshifter, newly appointed chief executive at the Youth Employment Service. And as a bonus, he gets given a seat on the South African National Planning Commission. We desperately need this planning commission and its plans to come to fruition. Um, And it's really, we started off by talking about whether South Africa was investable or not. If you want to make it investable, You've got to get that planning commission's work out into the public domain and make sure that it is implemented, acted upon, and that we actually make real progress. And then the money will flow. Investment will come as people see that we're a little bit serious about our own future.